We're focusing this morning in our uh, Bible study on the Holy Spirit and the church. Now, have you ever seen a sign, maybe in a lift or in a shop or in a business, and thought, there must be an interesting backstory behind that sign? What must have happened to mean they had to put up a sign like that? Here are some that I hope you'll enjoy. You see it? It says, this vending machine is no cups. Please do not cup your hands underneath it instead. <laughs> see it? On the milk fridge, it says, this is not an exit. <laughs> Please do not lick the bathroom walls. Thank you. This is a worrying one. See it? Attention, please make sure the elevator is there before stepping in. <laughs> this is a spaghetti-free zone. Seriously? Spaghetti in the library? What were you thinking? Go back downstairs. You look at signs like that and you think, what must be the backstory? What on earth happened to make somebody need to put up a sign like that? When I read the New Testament epistles, I find myself reading what Paul and others wrote to our brothers and sisters in the early church. And I find myself thinking, I'd love to know the backstory. What happened so that Paul has to write to Christians in Galatia, it's Galatians 5:26. let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed as well. What's the backstory there? We've seen this week that the Holy Spirit dwells in the life of every Christian, that the dwelling of the Spirit in the life of the Christian, so integrally related to the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, is in that sense normal, although it's extraordinary, but it's, it should be normal in the life of the Christian. We've seen that the Spirit uh, transforms individual lives. We've seen again and again, and that we'd be back to it before this morning's over, that the Holy Spirit's at work ahead of us in the world. This morning, our focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit in the development of a new community, the church. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're reading verses 1 to 5 and then 41 to 47. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And then we move on to verse uh, 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." first sermon I ever preached was on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And the people in the Dublin Central Mission on Lower Abbey Street in Dublin put up with my sermon and listened and loved me. And you'll be very glad to hear 
that what we're going to hear this morning in the sermon I'm going to preach is not the sermon I preached uh, all those years ago. But it's such a significant passage. The day of Pentecost comes. And we don't just have an experience of the Spirit for a group of individuals who happen to be gathered in Jerusalem. We've got a new community being formed in the power of the Spirit, a new sort of community which would, in its very being, be a sign in the world of God's love and mercy and grace and passion for justice, and which would resound in its being and in its life with the values of God's own kingdom. And in this tent... I know that you would have stories to tell about church being exactly that sort of community. I heard a story last weekend about a young woman who was on the very first flight out of Budapest uh, as soon as Hungary became a member of the EU. She settled, met a partner, became pregnant. But he was abusive and she had to leave and found herself eight months pregnant and homeless. A church that was near to her, although she'd had no contact with it, she heard that they ran a baby bank. And because she had nothing, she went round to the baby bank to see if the church could help her out with supplies for the baby. They did more than that. They helped her find a flat She moved in when she was eight days overdue and the baby was born on day nine. She came to the mums and toddlers group. She became a volunteer at the baby bank because she wanted to give something back. And she came to living faith in Jesus. That's the church being the church. That sort of community. Love, grace, and care. And I know that in this tent, you would have stories to tell like that. Now, here's something that I'm going to throw in that I probably should have mentioned on Monday or Tuesday. When you're preaching or teaching, it's very, very easy to know who's listening and who's not. When you're preaching or teaching, uh, most of the time you can tell who's with you. Most of the time, people keep a sort of neutral countenance. I was preaching once on the church and speaking about the picture that we're given in Revelation as the church, as the bride, the much-loved beautiful bride of Christ. And I'd given a couple of examples like the one I've just given you about the church being the church. And I saw a look on, a ma- on the face of a man sitting at about one o'clock in my field of vision. It was a look of disdain. He pulled it back really well when he saw me looking at him and we talked about it afterwards. But he had clearly been frustrated by talk of an ideal Christian community because he knew and I know that we're not. He knew and I know that we've all got backstories to tell about gossip and about falling out and about sniping with each other and about speaking badly about the church down the road because we're jealous. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other, says Paul. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We could probably match every story of the church being what the church is called to be, loving, gracious, kind, uh, seeking justice, nurturing, with stories about church being exactly the opposite, about hurt and arguments and division. Why is it, said someone to me on one occasion, that Christians are so nasty to each other? We say things in church meetings to each other that we'd never say in another context. I love church, and sometimes I struggle with church. When we fight over secondary issues, when we disagree poorly, And rather than seeking God together, choose to fall out and walk away. When we forget the big picture, 
when we let personal interest, what I want, override the vision of where God is calling us to be, when we don't bother to pray because we'd far rather go with our own plans, when we look only inward, in those darker moments, I struggle and wonder, who is this church? If the Spirit of God dwells within the life, not just of individuals, but of God's people, well then, why are we so broken? How is it that the church can be a source of healing and life and cause so much hurt to others and ourselves? So with a depth of trust in God that sees and believes what the church is called and enabled to be, and a depth of trust in God that enables us to be honest about the fact that we sometimes experience a different reality, I want us to turn to 1 Peter. And it's there that we're going to concentrate this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to read together verses 4 to 10. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in, in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Just listen to this, people of God. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Will you hear those words? Listen again. But, now, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let the Holy Spirit speak those words deep into our spirits this morning, that we, the church, diverse in this tent and representative of the church universal, that we, the church, might know in our deepest being who it is the Holy Spirit is calling and enabling us to be. Why? that we might declare the glorious riches of God. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The book of 1 Peter was written by Peter probably when he was in Rome about the year 63 to Christians who were scattered across a wide geographical area. The first verse of the letter tells us that it's directed to God's people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Many of those regions correspond to modern Turkey. The Christians to whom Peter was writing were incredibly diverse. 
They had different ethnic roots, different languages, different customs, different regional and political histories. It would be difficult to think of a more diverse group. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of that diversity of thinking and experience and opinion and background, they share a common experience, an experience of having encountered Jesus as you come to him, the living stone. This passage, which is going to have so much to say to us about the nature of church, begins unequivocally, clearly, with coming to Jesus. I guess that most of you in the tent this morning are Christians. Why would you get up early in the morning when you don't have to, if you didn't love the Lord? But if you're not, if you're here because someone's dragged you, or if you know you're distant, here again, the invitation that we've heard from this stage from God again and again this week, here again, the invitation of God's own spirit to you to know Jesus and surrender your life to him. As you come to him, the living stone, the crucial experience is their shared experience of Jesus. We begin with and are sustained by encounter with Jesus. But now, this passage pushes us to recognize another truth, that community, that church, necessarily happens when we'd encounter Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Rowan Williams has described church as what happens when people encounter the risen Jesus and commit themselves to sustaining and deepening that encounter in their encounter with each other. Paul's conversion is a great example of this, that as we come to know Jesus, we're drawn by the Spirit into relationship with Jesus and into relationship with God's people, the church. We know the story. Paul's on his way to Damascus. It's told to us in Acts 9, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against God's people. Where on that road, Saul has a personal encounter with Jesus. And drawn into relationship with Jesus, he's immediately drawn into relationship with God's people, especially two people. Ananias, that wonderful servant of the Lord, who hears God saying to him, go to Saul and greet him. And who has that wonderful, honest conversation where he really says to God, do you know who you're talking about? Do you, are you serious? This is Saul who's coming here to kill your people and you want me to go to him? And when God says go, Saul goes, or Ananias goes. And look at it later. Ananias goes to Saul, who's been there to persecute. And how does he greet Saul? Some of you know it. Brother. Brother, he says. Paul drawn into relationship with Jesus, finding himself drawn into relationship also with God's people. We see it in Ananias, we see it in Barnabas, who takes the risk of introducing the ex-persecutor soul to the inner circle of church leaders and who tells those leaders the story of Paul's conversion. The Spirit who draws us into communion with God and who draws us into communion with God's people. The 12 sons of Jacob became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jesus calls 12 apostles to himself, he's deliberately both continuing and refounding the people as the new Israel, the church. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built together. And maybe you're thinking, Grand Heather, great theory, terrible practice. 
Is that one of the occasions when we know the theory, but the practice is just so hard? There's a little rhyme that goes like this. To live above with saints we love, now that will be a glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. So if you'd rather not bother, then just look at the movement in this passage. As you come to him, you also are being built. Not if you want to be, not if you like them, you also are being built. And I wonder, I wonder could one of the obstacles to that being drawn into relationship with Jesus and Jesus' people, as well as that sense of this is too hard, be a sense of I'm not good enough, drawn into relationship with them, but they, they seem better than me. For my 50th birthday a couple of years ago, that's a wick reaction, come on. <laughs> For my 50th birthday a couple of years ago, oh, thank you very much, right, uh, Neil, my husband, brought me to uh, New York for a few days. Neil, I know, uh, thank you, I'll pass that on to him. Uh, Neil, uh, Neil's a very keen cyclist, uh, so on one of the days he organised a cycling tour of New York City. He got his brownie points back when the next day he organised a food tour of New York City. But we did the cycling tour Cycling, I, I love it, but it brings out all my insecurities. And I was standing on the sidewalk in New York uh, with my bike, and there were just four of us in the group, uh, Neil, me, my brother, and my sister-in-law, and I thought, this is great. And he said, we're just waiting for four more people. And uh, I thought, well, please, Lord, let them be older than me. Let them be less fit uh, than me. When down the street came four of the fittest people I've ever, ever seen in my life. It turned out it's the weekend of the New York Marathon. And these folk were all running the marathon on the Monday, or I think it was the Monday or the Saturday. They were all running the marathon anyway. And just to keep their bodies tuned, they were doing this cycling tour that day. And I looked at them and I thought, Lord, Lord, I'm in this group with them and I know who's the weakest link. And maybe, maybe when you think about being drawn into relationship with Jesus, you're thinking that's all right. But the hesitation for you about church isn't the fact that we often fall out or the difficulties in relationship. Maybe the barrier for you is you look around and you think, I'm not good enough. The secret's where that verse begins. As you come to him, the living stone. In relationship with Jesus, who knows us, who's died for us, who is alive, we find ourselves loved, equipped, part of this family. We're in this together. Now, Dave taught on Ephesians 4 uh, during the week, and I do not want to repeat that wonderful teaching, but I do want us to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
the significance of what Paul is teaching here about Christian unity cannot be underestimated. He says to the church in Ephesus, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But he's probing, pushing even deeper than that level of behavior. Because writing to a church who, yes, is young, but who are old enough to have differed and faced struggles, he teaches them about unity and he points them to a unity that isn't just above about their behavior on the surface. He points them to a unity that is rooted in and is a reflection of the very nature of God in God's self. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are called together as living stones and body into one because of the essential unity that is in God as Trinity. And we are called to live in the world as a reflection of the nature of God himself. Nearly every morning this week, we've read from John 16. In John 17, part of that same farewell discourse we find Jesus praying for his disciples and for those who would believe because of their testimony. He prays that they'd be protected because it was going to be hard. He prays that they'd be sanctified, made holy as the Spirit transforms. And you know, what's the third thing he prays for? That they'd be one as he and the Father are one. Listen to Jesus' prayer. We pick it up at verse 20 of John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And listen, listen for the same movement that we saw in Galatia and in Ephesus and in Peter. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The theory's great. The practice, the practice is difficult. Let's not become conceited. If you divide and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed. The history of the church is littered with broken relationships. What will we do? Will we say it's always been like that and ever will be? Do we shrug or do we choose to write the letter, have the coffee, hold back from gossip, be kind, determined to speak well of one another? Surely, Surely the power of the cross extends not just to the relationship between Jesus and me or Jesus and you. Surely the power of the cross extends to our relationships with one another as well. In the power of the cross and in the power of the Spirit will our generation do the unlikely thing and build relationships where there's brokenness. In the power of the Spirit will we resist the lie which the enemy speaks in our ear when he whispers, everybody falls out. It doesn't matter. It does matter. Our relationships with each other matter. They are a sign in the world of the love and presence and nature of God. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, yesterday in the Q&A seminar led by Barry, we had a question which was something like, what do spirit-filled churches look like? A really helpful, practical question. And the image of the people of God being built into a spiritual house that Peter gives us here helps us towards an answer to that what does this look like question. 
Don't be disturbed by the wind blowing. Just take it as the background noise of the Spirit. Take it as a wee image. To understand what the writer means about being built into a spiritual house, we need to step back into first century Jewish shoes. Throughout the history of Israel, God's presence was often associated with particular places. We could choose many examples. On the, on the journey of the children of Israel out of Egypt, God meets with Moses on Sinai. And that mountain was understood as holy ground because the presence of God was there. And in particular, through time, the presence of God becomes associated with the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where the Ten Commandments were held. And in Exodus chapter 25, God gives very specific instructions as to, to Moses as to the making of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was then placed within a tabernacle. And again, detailed instructions are given as to the construction of the tabernacle, which would be portable and would be carried with the people on their journey. And the book of Exodus ends with Moses, helped by Aaron, making sure that the tabernacle was as God had instructed it to be. They've been given incredibly detailed instructions. And this is then what happens. This is Exodus chapter 40, and I'm going to read from verse 33, very end of the book of Exodus. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard, and so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, awe-inspiring in its own right, but more the presence of God in the tabernacle was a sign of God's commitment to God's people. He was with them. They could see the sign of that with their own eyes. And God was so committed to them that God would journey with them. One commentator writes, from now on, the Israelites marched through the wilderness and through history with the Lord tenting among them and leading them on the land, on to the land of fulfilled promises. Time goes on. And the experience of the people of Israel changes and they become settled. And David wants to build a temple which is going to house the Ark of the Covenant. A building that would signify the presence and the character of God in the midst of God's people. In the same way that the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle had for generations. But uh, David's prevented from realizing that dream and the task falls to his son Solomon. Effort goes into building the temple because the temple was associated with the presence of the living God. And when the building's finished, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into it and God's glory fills the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. With that background in mind, hear these words from 1 Peter again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house when Peter's first readers and hearers heard or read those words, their minds would have spun back to the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Their minds would have expanded with the wonder of the presence of God being so particularly associated with that building. And now, says Peter, now the glory of God, now the presence of God dwells among God's people and you're being built into a spiritual house. 
Now, just as the character of God had been reflected in the temple, in its majesty, in its intricacy, in its beauty, so the character of God is going to be reflected in you. The people of God who are being built by the Spirit into a spiritual house. In the power of the Spirit, we get to be that church. Wow. We get to be that church. The place where in the power of the Spirit, something, the people, in whom the power of the Spirit, something of the beauty and presence and character of God might be made visible. But what does that look like? I want to just highlight a couple of characteristics. The tent has to come down tomorrow morning. We could spend all that time looking at characteristics. We're just going to highlight a couple. We're going to get very practical. I want you to remember where we started. Everything begins with that living relationship with Jesus as you come to him, the living stone. Unity. In the light of what I've just told you about the glory of God filling the temple, look back sometime to John 17, where he talks about the glory of God being seen in the unity of the people of God. What else does that look like? It looks like the presence of God. I told you the story yesterday of Dave at the nursery as he stood uh, in that big sash window, uh, waving, trying to smile through tears as I left him alone. Dave made it worse for me yesterday. Uh, when I went down and sat, uh, Susanna and uh, David and I uh, were speaking, and Dave said, do you know, Mum, that's my first memory. But I told that story as a reminder. I walked away from the son I love. And God, God has not left us alone. The spirit. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Sing it, brother. <laughs> For those of you who couldn't hear, there was a ringtone going, hallelujah. <laughs> God has not left us alone. This advocate, the spirit has come. God has not abandoned the world. Now, how's the world going to know that? How is the world going to know that? And Peter Peter, Peter points us to a picture of the people of God being built together like living stones in the midst of the world. The people of God built together as a sign in the world that God has not abandoned the world. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the earth and the Spirit of God still hovers over the face of the whole earth. One minister laments of how ashamed he is that Kentucky Fried Chicken is more committed to his neighborhood than the church is. It's a challenging neighborhood with many issues and the church is closed. But KFC have invested money and other resources in a fantastic building, the best building in the area. You're being built into a spiritual house, one sign of the presence and the utter wholehearted commitment of God to your community, to God's world, because God still loves the world. Robertson McQuilkin and his wife Muriel had been married for 39 years uh, when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. At the time, he was president of Columbia Bible College. Listen to a little bit of what he writes. Muriel cannot speak in sentences now, only in phrases and words, and often words that make little sense, no, when she means yes, for example. 
But she can say one sentence, and she says it often. I love you. She not only says it, she acts it. The board arranged for a companion to stay at our home so that I could go daily to the office. During those two years, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home. As soon as I left, she would take out after me. The walk to the office is a mile round trip. She would make that trip as many as 10 times a day. Sometimes at night, when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When I told her family doctor, he choked up. Such love, he said simply. Muriel, Muriel wasn't going to let anything stop her getting to the one she loved, even if it cost her bloody feet. So church, where are our bloody feet? I suspect, I suspect we're more comfortable with slippers. Another question that came up yesterday was how can we motivate the church to move into our community? I wonder, I wonder, dare we pray for love for our communities? Because we'll do anything for people we love. We'll not allow anything to stop us from getting to people we love. Dare you pray that God would place in your hearts something of his love for the people who live around your church or who live in your community. It's a dangerous prayer. I dare you to pray it in the name of Jesus. Being very practical. You might want to start simply prayer walking your community, not doing attention, just simply walking and praying and asking God for discernment. Another church I know simply put up a map of the area in the church and asked folks to pray for particular streets every week. We've seen it again and again this week. It's the character of the Spirit to be moving, to be ahead of us, preparing and taking the initiative. Are we up? for broken, cut, bloody feet. Up for the cost in commitment to be a sign of the presence and love of God in our communities. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house. We get to be that sort of church, that sort of people in the power of God's spirit. What does it look like? It looks like presence. What does it look like? It looks like radical hospitality. I spoke in the seminar yesterday about Martin Atkins, who says there's a huge difference between a, a friendly church, and most churches say they're friendly, and a church where I can make friends. Friendly church is one where you're welcome as a visitor. There's polite conversation and you pass the time of day. A church where I can make friends is one where we're willing to share our lives together and build real relationships. The beginning of Thessalonians, the writer says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were willing not just to preach the gospel from a distance, but to live among them for their sake, to build real relationships, to be people with whom they could make friends. Anne and I had tea the other night with one of the seminar speakers, and she talked about uh, two uh, Christians who are very famous in the Christian world, and how three of her children, I think it was, had lived uh, with that couple, and she said, you know, they're the real thing. My children have lived with them and they know that they're the real thing. It's the integrity point that Jago was challenging us so powerfully about last night. You know how we lived among you for their sake. Will we offer that sort of radical hospitality? Thank God for tray bakes, but it's more than tray bakes. It's real relationship.
sharing our lives together. What does a spirit-filled church look like? It looks like focus on Jesus. It looks like unity. It looks like presence. It looks like radical hospitality. And it looks like obedience to the spirit of God who's ahead of us. Don't think house and think contained. Think house and think people. Think house and think spirit, who's the leader and enabler of mission. It's not our church. John V. Taylor puts it this way. Our theology would improve if we thought more of the church as being given to the spirit than of the spirit being given to the church. Do you get that? Our theology would improve if we thought more of the church being given to the spirit than of the spirit being given to the church. The chief actor, he goes on, in the historic mission of the Christian church is the Holy Spirit. He's the director of the whole enterprise. The mission consists of the things he's doing in the world in a special way. It consists of the light he's focusing on Jesus. We do better if we thought of the church being given to the spirit rather than the spirit being given to the church. We see it all the way through the New Testament. In Acts 8, where Philip's told to go to the desert road. For Acts 10, where the spirit guides Cornelius and Peter and the spirit leads. In Acts 13, where as they were were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to do. The spirit leads. What does a spirit-filled church look like? It looks like a church that knows that and that says yes, that obeys when the Spirit leads. Romans 8 describes Christians as being led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, we're told to keep in step by the Spirit. Our theology would improve if we thought more of the church being given to the Spirit than of the Spirit being given to the church. I told you yesterday that I'm a planner, I like my strategy, I like my lists. But as I look back on ministry, the really significant opportunities came along when we were prayerful and when we almost fell in to what God was doing, when we experienced God just opening doors. Peter, Peter knows our failings and our fears. And in the power of the Spirit, he reminds the church who they are. Cheered on by a great cloud of witnesses, who are we? As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then moving to verse nine, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Come with me to a valley and let's read together from Ezekiel chapter 37. This is the word of God for the people of God. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones 
live. I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath, come ruach, spirit of God, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. As the wind rattles around us, will we allow the Ruach Spirit of God to blow through us and blow into us, to blow through us when we feel like dry bones, whether that's as individuals or whether dry bones sums up your experience of church at the minute. Will we allow that Ruach Spirit of God to breathe life and to bind us together so that as the people of God we rise up with the name of God writ large on our lives and in our hearts. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, come breath of God, come sweeping through us, revive thy church with power and love. Come breath of God, come cleanse renew us. Come Holy Spirit. And if you're up for this, if you're up for journeying with God, if you're up for coming close to the living stone knowing that the Holy Spirit also draws us into relationship with one another, if you're up for being built into a people who shine and show the presence of God in the world. Will you stand with me? Just as we pray, will you stand as a sign of your commitment? This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood, stood up on their feet, a vast army. Thanks be to God. Amen.